It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Whether Jennifer was involved in Catalina's murder or not, there's one thing that we know for sure. The actual murderer or murderers have never been brought to justice. Jennifer was convicted based on her confession, in which she admitted to serving as a lookout for two men who were supposed to rob Catalina. DNA evidence from the scene supports the notion that Jennifer was not the actual killer, and the state itself does not claim that Jen was the person who beat or stabbed Catalina. I don't think there are many, if any people out there, that would disagree with me that Catalina's true killer was never caught. Throughout this season, I've been extremely critical of the HPD's failure to find the actual killer or killers. To be fair, in today's episode, I want to share with you the actual effort that was made by Detectives Swainson and Allen to solve this case. Beginning with the offense report right after Swainson wrote, Case cleared by juvenile arrest and charges filed. This is Season 10, Episode 27, After the Arrest. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we jump into the post-arrest investigation, I want to briefly circle back to last week's topic, the wallet. In last week's episode, I broke down the story of where the wallet was found. But a follow-up post by a listener got me thinking more about it. Butch Bella posted a really good question on the Facebook fans page. What was the utility in leaving the wallet behind? Or lack thereof? Eva moved out a couple days after the murder, and when she did, the wallet was left behind the refrigerator. The question is, why was it left behind? And to be upfront with you, I don't have the answer. For many, the wallet being left behind points to Jennifer. She got arrested the next day, so she never had a chance to return to the apartment to discard the wallet. And to be honest, I can't argue with the logic. It really makes no sense to me that the wallet was left behind. However, I do think it's important for us to lay out the full scenario. Who actually had the opportunity to remove the wallet after the police left? And the answer is, 
all four of the people that were inside the apartment. At some point, the wallet was tucked in behind the fridge. Presumably, this occurred in the first few moments after the murder. Police were coming, and the wallet needed to be stashed somewhere quick. Then you have the police on the scene all morning and early afternoon. Youngster and KD leave the area, and Eva and Jennifer are taken to the police station to give statements. But later that night, at one point or another, everyone returned to the scene. Eva was back in her apartment after she returned from the station. Jennifer went over to Eva's after she returned home, and at some point that night, Katie and Youngster were at least in the complex. And we know that they were in Eva's apartment for sure the next day because their visitor badges and the Polaroid photos of them taken at the police station were found on Eva's counter. The point I'm making is that everyone had the opportunity to remove the wallet from the apartment, and no one did. The question is why? It could be that the wallet was just out of sight and out of mind. The police had already searched the apartment and they didn't find it, so it may have just seemed like a good enough place to hide it. It could have just been forgotten about, and while that may seem crazy to us, it is a possibility. Whoever took it could have looked through it for cash, stuffed it back there, and really never gave it a second thought. It's also possible that the fridge appeared to be some kind of immovable object to the person that put it back there. I know that sounds silly, but we're not talking about a group of people that grew up with a hammer in their hands. I tested this out on my daughter the other night. I asked her how she thought that she could get something that dropped behind the fridge. She looked at it and asked me how it was attached to the cabinets. Further discussion revealed that she assumed that it was, quote, part of the house. Now that, of course, is anecdotal, but it got me thinking that perhaps our wallet thief just assumed that the fridge was part of the apartment. Then there are the more incriminating explanations. For Katie and Youngster, they could have just figured it's not their place, so who cares if it's found there? For Eva, she could have figured that once Jen was arrested, if they found the wallet in the apartment, that they would just assume that Jen put it there. So there was no reason to take the risk of getting caught trying to move it. And for Jen, the explanation is pretty simple. She could have planned to move it later, but got arrested and never got the chance. On its face, I'll agree that that explanation makes the most sense. But it's definitely not the only solution. And if that is the case, then we still have a lot more going on here than what we see in her confession. We can't just ignore all of the evidence that points heavily towards Eva lying about her alibi, lying about the voice, and asking the rest of the group to lie. I just can't square all of that with Jen being involved without Eva's knowledge or participation. Here's another thought to consider. We've been focusing on why the wallet wasn't removed, but we really haven't addressed who had the opportunity to put it there to begin with. I'm going to give you my thoughts on this real quick, and then we'll get into the post-arrest investigation. First, let's look at Katie and Youngster. There's only one scenario where either of them would have had the opportunity to stash the wallet, and this is assuming that the wallet was taken during the attack and not randomly stolen later they would have had to have been directly involved with the murder along with Eva. Katie, Youngster, and Eva have all tied themselves together. In Katie and Youngster's versions, there's room for Eva to have been involved without them, but in Eva's version, there's no room for Katie and Youngster to have been involved without her. All three of them agree that they were in the living room together during the screaming. 
In no version of Eva's story is there any room for Katie and Youngster to have snuck out past her, murdered Catalina, and then snuck back in. So if Katie and Youngster were involved, then so was Eva. Or at the very least, she would be lying to protect them, which still makes her involved. And if that were the case, then yes, they would all have had time to come back in the apartment together and stash the wallet. But with that being said, I absolutely do not think that that's what happened. And without all three of them acting together, which again, I don't think happened, then Katie and Youngster had no opportunity to stash the wallet. So that leaves Jen or Eva. Let's first look at Jen. In this scenario, Jen would be guilty. She was actually inside watching Catalina get murdered, like she said, and Eva and the guys are completely uninvolved. So, Eva runs off to get help, and Katie and Youngster are inside the apartment. Jen jumps over the fence, and she has the wallet. She's standing outside when Eva and Pam return from the office. According to witnesses, Jen is hanging around the scene for a bit, and then she walks away. So, she's away from the scene for some period of time, long enough for Ruby, Cena, and Nina to see Katie and Youngster come out of the apartment, and then a few minutes later, they see Eva exit, and then after the police are there, they see Jen walk back up to the scene. She goes up the stairs and sits next to Eva. At some point after that, Jen and Eva go back into the apartment together. We have no reports of Jen ever being in the apartment alone. She changes clothes at some point, But Swainton says that he found the two of them in the apartment together. So here's a few things to think about. If Jen is the one who had Catalina's wallet with her, and she walked away from the scene, why wouldn't she dump it somewhere else? She's away from the scene, and everyone's attention in the entire complex, I'm sure, is on Catalina's apartment. She could have tossed it in some bushes, or thrown it in a dumpster, or down a storm drain. She had many, many options to get rid of the wallet. But if she's the one that stashed it, then that means she walked back up to the scene that had police all over the place with the wallet in her pocket. And then when she gets back to the scene, she doesn't go quickly inside the apartment alone. No, instead, she just sits down next to Eva and watches the police work. It's hard to say for sure because we don't have exact times but it does appear that Jen was gone from the scene for a decent amount of time. In the crime scene video, we see Eva sitting on the steps alone. Ruby Sullivan says that Eva was on the steps alone and then, quote, after the ambulance and some of the first officers were arriving, she saw Jen come walking up and go sit next to Eva. In the record that we have, there is no point in time when Jennifer is ever in the apartment alone to stash the wallet. Now, that doesn't mean that she never was, but we can't point to a time when she was. And if she is the one who stashed the wallet, then she would have exited the crime scene, stood there when Pam and Eva showed up with the wallet in her pocket, followed Pam into the crime scene with the wallet still in her pocket. Then after she gets shooed out, she walks away somewhere else in the complex and then brought the wallet back to the scene with police officers already there and sat down on the steps right in front of them, holding the murdered woman's wallet in her pocket the entire time. And then, at some point, she stashed the wallet. Likely when Eva was in the apartment with her. Now, let's look at Eva. In this scenario, we're assuming that she was directly involved in the murder and took the wallet as a part of the attack, just like we did with Jen. 
If that was the case, what was her opportunity? Katie and Youngster both said that they were in the back bedroom, that they got up when they heard Eva at the front door. Her actual whereabouts and the moments leading up to that are completely unknown. This could have presented the first opportunity to stash the wallet. It's entirely possible that the guys did catch her going back out of the apartment. She could have easily came in, stashed the wallet, and then was going back out to act as though she was trying to help when the boy saw her at the door. In all actuality, if Eva was involved, this is the scenario that makes the most sense in my mind. And that's the trick, right? We all have different opinions about the case, and we're all trying to come up with scenarios or hypotheses that fit the evidence without conflicts. And this, I think, is one of them. Doesn't mean it's true, but it fits. For me, when I considered this scenario, something clicked. Why would Eva go back into the apartment before running for help? Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Keep in mind, again, this is hypothetical. We're assuming in this scenario that Eva is guilty. And if she is guilty, then based on Katie and Youngster's statements, and her own, Eva ran back into her apartment before she went down, pretended to hear the screaming, and ran for help. Why? I think the wallet explains the why. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying this is what happened. I know I've said this 15 times, but somebody will say I'm accusing her of this. This is just one potential scenario. But if Eva was involved, then it makes perfect sense that she would run up and stash the wallet before she ran for help. She certainly had the opportunity to do so. More opportunity, I would say, than anyone else did. In this scenario, she exits Catalina's apartment, runs up the stairs, stashes the wallet, then heads back down so she can look like a witness. And that's when Katie and Youngster exit the bedroom and catch her at the door. That wasn't the only opportunity Eva had to stash the wallet. Let's also not forget that as soon as she returned to the scene with Pam, while Pam was still trying to get inside the door, Eva didn't wait around. She ran straight up into her apartment. A few minutes later, Katie and Youngster left, leaving her inside alone for a few minutes before she made her exit. So an alternate scenario, one that makes just as much sense in my opinion, is that she ran into the apartment to stash the wallet and Katie and Youngster caught her coming back in. She could have stuck the wallet somewhere near the door, in a plant or a table or something close by. And that's why she was in such a rush to get back up there when she returned with Pam. She couldn't hang out downstairs and be there when the door was opened 
because the guys were in the apartment with the wallet. So what could have happened is right after the murder, she runs up to stash the wallet and the guys catch her at the door. So she goes down, she gets Pam, brings Pam back to the scene, and then goes back into the apartment, tells Youngster and KD that they need to go out and tell people they heard screaming, and then after they leave, she finally stashes the wallet behind the refrigerator, and then she comes outside. To sum this up, I don't think KD and Youngster had an opportunity to stash the wallet. And if they did, then they had to have been involved in the murder with Eva which I just don't believe. Jennifer may have had an opportunity to stash the wallet at some point, but it would have been after she walked around the neighborhood with it in her pocket, brought it back to the crime scene with cops everywhere, and spent some time sitting on the steps with Eva just above the police who were working on the scene. Now, Eva, as I just laid out, clearly had at least two very easy opportunities to hide the wallet. And I think that it had to have been either Jennifer or Eva. And lastly, I want to point out one more thing. Jennifer, in all of her statements, in every version, even when she confessed to being the one who was inside and grabbed the keys and opened the drawer to get the knife, has never, not once, mentioned the wallet. Never. Maybe someone could argue that there's some utility in there somewhere for her to admit everything else, but not the wallet. But to me, it sure looks an awful lot like she never mentioned the wallet because she didn't know about it. And now compare that to Eva. Before the grand jury and again at trial, Eva testified that she saw Jennifer stuffing something into her pants when she returned to the scene with Pam. She tells a fantastical tale about how when she returned with Pam, Jen was standing outside with Youngster and KD and she was screaming hysterically and stuffing something into her pockets. Besides the fact that she never said anything about this in her three interviews with police, she's also completely contradicting her own statements about what was going on when she returned, along with everyone else's. Katie and Youngster weren't outside when Pam arrived on the scene, and Jennifer wasn't at all hysterical. In fact, she was described by everyone as being very calm. And Eva wasn't standing outside talking to anyone either. She ran straight up to her apartment when she returned with Pam Wiley. Now, we've pointed this out before that this is another instance of Eva changing her story, lying and throwing Jennifer under the proverbial bus. But what we've never pointed out before was the fact that this sure seems like Eva has some knowledge of the wallet. Now, this could very well be that either the police or prosecutor had informed her by this time that the wallet was found in her apartment. But I have my doubts that the DA told her to lie and make up a story like that. Even the most crooked DAs aren't usually dumb enough to directly tell someone to lie on the stand. Especially in a case like this, where they have a confession. They don't need that little bit of testimony to help convict Jennifer. The utility in that lie is not to make Jennifer look more guilty. I think it's to make Eva look more innocent. The story is obviously not true. And it obviously shows that Eva is making an unnecessary attempt to make sure that the jury believes that the wallet was in Jen's hands, not hers. The police case file shows the investigation into Catalina's murder as cleared on October 31st 
the day after Jennifer Jeffley was arrested. Swainton and Allen did, however, continue to investigate for a little while after that. For the rest of this episode, I'm going to be sharing with you the progress reports written by the officers. It's not much analysis here. I just want to make sure that I'm being as thorough as possible and cover the entire investigation. For the most part, I'm going to be reading to you directly from the reports. Page 46 of the HPD case file contains the heading, Continued Investigation. Swainson lays out the following checklist for what still needs to be done. Quote, Officer Swainson and his partner, Sergeant Allen, continue their investigation of the murder of Catalina Palomino. Several objectives have been identified and will be investigated, including the following. Check the alleged co-suspect's pager subscriber information. Check the subscriber of the possible return phone call made when the pager number was dialed. Obtain written statements from additional witnesses, which include House and Ram, Broderick Redrock Smith, Pam Wiley, and others not known at this time by this investigator. Remember, Jennifer was arrested before all these written statements were taken. Then Swainson's checklist concludes with this, quote, Continue our efforts to identify the alleged co-defendants in this case. Jennifer Jeffley, the charged defendant, provided two street names as alleged co-conspirators. The file is broken up into a series of short supplemental reports. I'm going to continue through them the way they're written, which is mostly chronological, but it bounces back and forth between Swainson and Allen. It starts with Swainson. In this first one, he's making contact with a bunch of other officers trying to track down Ernest and Tim. Swainson proceeded to the Southwest Brayburn Storefront Police Station to meet with the officers responsible for patrolling the 10,800 block of Sandpiper. This area and the nearby apartment complexes are reportedly the location where the defendant, Jeffley, mentioned as a possible hangout-slash-residence of the alleged co-suspects Slow and Ernest Swanson. Swainson met with the officers assigned to the directed patrol and the bicycle detail that are responsible for the area. These officers were briefed with known details of the investigation. Swainson met with the supervisors of these units along with the TACT unit personnel responsible for the area. Swainson proceeded to the Southwest Police Station located at 4503 Beechnut and met with officers of the TACT and gun units. These officers were briefed on the standing of the investigation. Swainson proceeded to the neighborhood storefront location located at South Willow and South Post Oak. There, Swainson met with the entire bicycle detail and other officers that work the Sandpiper area. Hotspot units and fugitive details were also briefed. The purpose of these briefings was to locate any possible suspects known to these officers by the names provided by Jennifer Jeffley. Remember that bit for later. I'm going to read it to you again. The purpose of these briefings was to locate any possible suspects known to these officers by the names provided by Jennifer Jeffley. So the purpose is to find suspects by those names. Quote, Swainson found it unusual that no officer or supervisor in these details had information that could assist this investigator. All units were provided the investigator's phone number and were encouraged to contact with any information. As of this writing, no suspect information has been developed through these resources. So Swainson met with the officers that patrol the area where Jen said that the co-conspirators lived, and he also met with the bike units, the gang unit, the hotspot unit, and the fugitive detail. He gave them all the names and descriptions of the suspects, and as you heard, he found it unusual that no one was able to come up with any real people from the descriptions. Based on what he's saying here, I'm assuming that this method is typically successful. 
Next, Swainson tries to track down the owner of the pager that Jennifer gave the detectives in her confession. Quote, Swainson indicated in supplement number 11 that the pager number provided by the defendant, Jeff Lee, was dialed by this officer. Swainson used a cool phone located within the homicide division. The division is equipped with one number for the entire detail, and this number is used by and all of the investigators assigned to this unit. Swainson dialed the pager number while Sergeant Allen was in the process of obtaining the custodial juvenile statement. A few minutes later, a call was received on the caller ID appliance. The caller ID identified the subscriber as Deborah Derrett. This was checked by a homicide division analyst, and an address on Truxillo Street was developed. Later the same night, the defendant, Jeff Lee, agreed to participate in a recorded telephone conversation with the return caller. We sat down with a fresh tape in the recording machine after the custodial statement was secured. The pager number was dialed several times, and no response was ever obtained. The caller ID box was checked the next morning, and no new phone calls came in during the night. Pat Mathis of the Homicide Division Analyst Detail was able to locate the subscriber information regarding the pager itself. The pager number was issued and sold from a business located within the King Flea Market on Griggs Road. Mathis requested that the owner-operator of the business check their records and provide them with the name of the customer possessing the pager. Mathis provided the following information. Hazara Vaughns, receipt number 59891. Sergeant Allen investigated this portion of the pager connection. See his supplement for details. Allen's supplement is just a few pages down in the report, so we'll just continue on and get to it in just a few minutes. But put a pin in that for right now. In the next supplement, Detective Swainson circled back to talk to Youngster. This is two days after he gave his written statement and Jen was arrested. On Friday, November 1st, 1996, Swainson spoke with Youngster, Pharrell Smith, and he agreed to assist in the investigation. He was picked up at his residence at 11 a.m. this date with his mother's permission. During the subsequent interview, he had no new information to provide. Something I find interesting here is they interviewed Youngster again after Jen was arrested, which means at this point they had all of the statements. They knew that his statement conflicted with KD's, it conflicted with Eva's, and it conflicted with Jennifer's and Pam Wiley's and Keith Truesdale's for that matter. But still, he's not a suspect. They just say that he provided no new information. Quote, At the conclusion of the interview, Youngster agreed to participate with paging the pager number provided by Jeffley. We used a cool phone located in the robbery division, which carried a different phone number than the one used in the homicide division. This was done to circumvent the possibility of a caller ID feature the holder of the pager may have. The operation was set up using the cool phone, a tape recorder, and Youngster to do the talking attempting to obtain a name while investigators recorded the caller's subscriber information. No response was ever obtained. The operation was terminated later that afternoon. Swainson then transported Smith to his mother's job site. So now, at this point in the investigation, the detectives had a call into the cool line from the night Jennifer was arrested that may or may not have been in response to the page, because remember, that cool phone is used by everyone in that unit. But the call that came in was from a number belonging to a Deborah Derrett. And they were able to determine that the person who bought the pager from the flea market was named Hazara Vaughns. So their next step was to go to Deborah Derrett's home and question her about why someone called the cool phone from her number. Quote, On Saturday, November 2nd, 1996, Swainson and Mallon met at the 3200 Truxillo location. This is the address of the possible incoming phone call received in our caller ID. 
The address is included in the Cunny Homes Project, located near the Scott, Tier Western, and the Texas Southern University area. Swainson and Allen met with Deborah Darrett and were introduced to her daughter, Dorothy Darrett, who was a black female 16 years old. Neither woman could offer a plausible explanation for the phone call to the homicide office. Dorothy works at a nearby child care center and could not provide any information why the telephone was used on Wednesday evening when the call came in. It's not mentioned in the report if the women were asked if they knew anyone named Jennifer, Tim, Slow, or Ernest. Next up, we move to the Tuesday after the murder. This is when Allen and Swainson returned to the Green Arbor to do some follow-up interviews. On Tuesday, November 5th, Swainson and Allen proceeded to the Green Arbor Apartments to interview additional witnesses. We were interested in obtaining written statements from the apartment complex manager, Pam Wiley, and resident Broderick Kent Red Rock Smith. Youngster indicated in his statement that the mother of a set of twin females was standing outside their apartment on the day of the murder. Investigators were interested in interviewing these individuals also. When we arrived at the complex, Swainson proceeded to Red Rock's apartment. Swainson learned that he was not at home, but was expected to return soon. Swainson left a message to have him proceed to the apartment office upon his arrival. Meanwhile, Swainson proceeded to the defendant's apartment to meet with her mother. No one was home. Sergeant Allen proceeded to the apartment office to obtain Pam Wiley's written statement, and he later obtained a statement from Red Rock. Swainson located a Ruby Sullivan in apartment number 157 who had two sets of twin daughters. The eldest girls were outside with her on the morning of the murder discovery. Swainson interviewed the women. Next up, we have Detective Allen's supplement in regards to the pager subscriber info. Sergeant Allen reviewed this case and noted that two of the witnesses that were interviewed did not have a summary of their statements within the offense report. This is troubling and is the only information we get. So we know that a couple days after the murder, People were interviewed, and there were never any notes taken or written down or put into the file about those interviews. He doesn't say who it was or if they were ever added. So there may still be interviews out there that we have no idea even happened. Quote, Additionally, we had conducted follow-up concerning a pager number that the suspect Jennifer Jeffley provided. Jeffley stated that one of the two other possible suspects in this case, Ernest Watson, had this pager and committed the offense. We obtained the subscriber information for the pager and determined that the pager had been sold at the King Flea Market located on Griggs Road. The pager had been purchased by Hazara Vaughn on July 1, 1996 with receipt number 59891. Allen telephoned the owner, Bruce Yu, Cellular King, and a copy of the receipt was faxed to the homicide office as is included in the case file. A check of the address was done and the following persons found to have vehicles registered at this address. Sandra Jones Jr. had a 1989 Dodge, and William Morgan had a 1976 Chevy and a 1982 Oldsmobile. Service at the address was in the name of Gladys Jones. We also found a possible traffic warrant for a Danae Vaughns, black male, 24 years old, 135 pounds. Vaughns' Texas driver's license showed an address in Missouri City. Allen drove to the Faircroft address and interviewed the residents there. Allen determined that William Morgan, black male, 26, resides at this address with his mother, Gladys Jones, and grandmother, Willie Jean Morgan. Morgan advised him that Hazara Vaughns is a relative and had been living there, but he put her out. Morgan stated that Hazara is living with her brother at an apartment complex on the southwest side of town. Morgan then gave Allen Hazara's telephone number. Morgan agreed to take me to the apartment complex. 
Allen was directed to the Shadow Creek Apartments, 9475 Rorick Road, apartment number 134. The apartment is leased by her sister-in-law, Deborah Dunmore, and brother, Danae Vaughns. Allen then arrived at the Vaughns' residence and interviewed Hazara. And just to make sure you're keeping all this straight, Hazara is the person who originally bought the pager at the flea market. Here's the report on her interview. Ms. Vaughns is not employed. The interview was direct and brief. Ms. Vaughns acknowledged that she had purchased a pager from the King's Flea Market on Griggs in July. Ms. Vaughns stated that she had lost the pager at a girlfriend's named Kim Weasley and Patrick Woods in the South Park area of the city. Ms. Vaughns stated she does not know their address and does not have a telephone number for them. Ms. Vaughns stated that she had contacted the pager company and spoke with a black male there and requested that the pager be canceled. Ms. Vaughns stated that she had only paid for two months and could not understand why the pager would still be activated. Ms. Vaughn stated she does not know anyone named Jennifer Jeffley, Ernest Watson, or Tim, a.k.a. Slow. The interview was concluded at that time. We have not been able to come up with any information to date on Ernest Watson or Tim, a.k.a. Slow. And that right there is the last word that we hear about Tim and Ernest. In this report, Ms. Vaughn's appears to be a dead end. According to her, she bought the pager at a flea market in July, paid to have it activated for two months, which would make it active until September 1st. She then lost the pager and contacted the company and canceled the service. Assuming that's all true, then that would mean someone found the pager and started their own service on it. Now, she does seem to give a couple of leads here. She at least gives some names of the people's house she was at when she lost the pager. We don't have any follow-up on that. This is it. A couple days after Jennifer's arrested, and quote, We have not been able to come up with any information to date on Ernest Watson or Tim, a.k.a. Slow. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The next supplement in the report takes us back to October 31st, the day after Jennifer's arrest. So we're kind of going back in time right now. We've moved on from Swainson's reports to Allen's. Allen is returning to Green Arbor here to look for Eva. Quote, Sergeant Allen drove to the Green Arbor apartments. Allen requested Officer Dan Arnold to accompany Allen to the complex. Officer Arnold is fairly new to the Homicide Division and had requested to assist with the investigation. We walked to the apartment number 58 in an attempt to locate Eva Mondragon. We wanted to speak with Eva concerning her knowledge of Jeffley's male friends. There was no answer at the door and we walked to the office and Allen telephoned Eva's father. Allen spoke with Eva and she agreed to drive to the complex. While outside of the office, Sergeant Allen recognized the young male that we had spoken to on Tuesday night. This male was a person that Jennifer Jeffley had spoke to, and she indicated that he had been talking with youngster. J. Terrell Jones, black male, 17 years old, lives in Unit 232, attends Dolby, 9th grade. Terrell admitted knowing Jennifer and her sister Kim. Terrell stated that everyone was talking about what had happened, that they had been looking in the shrubs and around the complex for a knife, but had not found one. Terrell stated he did not know anyone by the name of Ernest Watson or Tim. 
Terrell stated that he could not understand why they had killed the woman. Terrell stated that he could have understood if they had robbed her and tied her up, but did not believe that they had to kill her. Terrell claimed to have no direct knowledge of who was involved in the Capitol murder. Terrell is someone that I have been looking for for weeks now. There should be enough information here to find him. Allen lists his first, middle, and last names, as well as his age and address. But for some reason, every resource that I have is coming up with nothing. Although there are some inconsistencies. Allen lists Terrell as 17 years old, but says that he's a freshman in high school. I suppose that's possible, but it's definitely not typical. Freshmen are typically between 14 and 15 years old, and the average high school student turns 17 during their junior year, not their freshman year. In any case, I would love to talk to Terrell because he seems to be a part of the group that Cena Sullivan mentioned to me. He used kind of the same phrase as she did with me. He said that everyone was talking about the murder. He even says that kids from the neighborhood were looking in the shrubs for a knife. Now think about that. How did they know she was stabbed? Was it Colin Knowledge? Did Pam Wiley and the other witnesses tell everyone? I don't know. But it is worth noting that these kids knew that they should be looking for a knife. Next, Alan goes looking for Janet Dorsey, who apparently used an alias to sign up for her lease. Here's the report. We walked up to apartment number three where Janet Dorsey is believed to live. Jeffley stated she had gone to her friend Dorsey's the morning of the Capitol murder and used the telephone. Alan knocked on the door and there was no answer. We walked to the office and Alan asked the manager if we could see the lease agreement for apartment number three in an effort to get Dorsey's telephone number and any other relevant information. Alan determined that following information from the lease agreement, Dorsey is using an alias name, Sharon D. McLean. While in the office, Dorsey was spotted at the mailbox by an employee and pointed out to investigators. Sergeant Allen approached Dorsey and identified himself and advised her that he wanted to speak with her. Dorsey was initially belligerent. Dorsey stated she did not know anything. Allen asked her if she knew Jennifer Jeffley, and she stated that she did. Dorsey seemed to relax and stated she heard that we had picked up Jennifer. Dorsey stated she did not know much about it except what she had heard. Dorsey stated Jennifer had come over that morning and used the phone and called her friend, and then Jennifer left. Dorsey could not recall what Jennifer was wearing at that time of the morning. Alan asked Dorsey if she knew anyone acquainted with Jennifer by the name of Ernest Watson. Dorsey stated she did not know anyone by that name and had never heard that name mentioned. Alan asked Dorsey if she knew anyone named Slim, Slick, or Slow that hung around Jennifer or the complex. Dorsey stated that Jennifer hung around several young people, but no one by that name to her knowledge. Alan asked Dorsey if anyone that came over and hung around Jennifer drove a white car. Dorsey stated that youngster's friend Richard drives a small four-door white car, like a Sentra. Dorsey stated that Richard also drives a red-black Camaro Z28. Dorsey stated Richard dates Jennifer's sister, Kimberly Jeffley. Dorsey stated Richard is a black male, chubby, fade haircut, medium complexion, and has three golds in his mouth. Alan gave Dorsey a business card and asked her to call the homicide division in the event she comes up with any other information. A few people have pointed this description of Richard out to me and have suggested that Richard could be Ernest. Jennifer described Ernest as having golds on his teeth and driving a white car. One listener even made the connection that Tim could be Kim, Jennifer's sister. There's two ways to look at this. One theory is that the killers were actually Kim and Richard, 
and Jennifer just changed the names in her confession. Personally, I think that's a stretch. As far as we know, Kim was in school on the morning of the murder. Police never confirmed that, but we also have zero evidence to contradict it. There's not one single witness that puts Kim anywhere near the complex at the time of the murder, or Richard for that matter. Eva doesn't know Kim. Kim has never been to Eva's apartment. Neither Kim nor Richard have any conflict with Catalina, and the list goes on and on. I think it's a good thought, or at least a good catch, that there are some similarities in Jennifer's description of Ernest and Janet's description of Richard. But I think there's a much better explanation. Remember, several weeks ago, I suggested that Jen's confession was kind of a Kaiser Soze situation. Alan was pushing her for details about things that didn't actually happen. He wanted her to describe people that didn't exist. As we heard from Laura Nyrider last week, this is very typical behavior in juvenile false confessions. Once they've broken, and they've submitted themselves to the fact that they have to tell the detective what he wants to hear, they'll just keep making up stories to try to come up with a narrative that the interrogator will accept. In this case, I do think it's possible that she was drawing from people that she knows to come up with the descriptions. She very well may have been describing Richard, but that doesn't mean that Richard was actually involved. No more than Swainson was involved because she came up with a name for her imaginary accomplice as Swatson. I'm not here to tell you that Jennifer had zero involvement in this crime. We still have too many unknowns for me to know that at this point. But I definitely do not believe her confession, and I'm very confident that 90% of the details contained in it were made-up nonsense. Her trying to give details that Alan would actually accept because in her mind she could go home when this was over. I don't think many of those details are true, including Ernest and Tim. Next, Alan speaks with Eva Wise there. We've already gone over that report. This is where Eva says that she thinks it was actually Jennifer's voice that she heard inside the apartment and not a deep, scraggly, raggedy man's voice. And then Alan speaks to Youngster again. This is Friday, two days after Jennifer's arrest. Alan and Swainson met with Pharrell Smith, a.k.a. Youngster, on this date. Swainson addresses the meeting in supplement number 16 of this report. Youngster does not acknowledge knowing anyone by the name of Ernest Watson, Tim, or Slow. Youngster did provide us with Richard's full name, Richard Smith, about 17 years old, and Richard attends Dobie High School. Youngster stated that Richard drives a small, white Sentra-type car. I do want to point out here that I find it very hard to believe that both Janet Dorsey and Youngster described the car as white like a Sentra of all cars to pick, just happens to be the type of car that Jennifer said that the killers were driving. I don't buy it. I think at best, they may have asked them, could it have been a Sentra? And they might have said, maybe or kind of like. But I don't think that they both just on their own said it was like a Sentra. Quote, Allen conducted an inquiry on Richard Smith in the juvenile division and found Richard Paul Smith to have a juvenile criminal history. Smith attended Dobie High School. Smith had a listed address on Westridge, and his mother is Patricia Johnson. Smith was handled for assault in December of 1995. A review of the case indicated Smith was wanted in connection with the assault by juvenile. Investigation to continue. And after this, it's crickets from Allen and Swainson. 
They put in a solid three days of investigation after Jennifer was arrested, and then nothing for a month and a half, other than getting the written statements from witnesses that they had already talked to. We have no follow-up with anyone from the complex after that. No supplements on any investigation into Richard. Nothing. If they did any investigating over the next seven weeks, they didn't document it. The next supplement we have is from December 19th when Jennifer's lawyer contacted Alan and wanted to do the drive-around to show the detectives where her supposed accomplices lived. I'm sure you remember that that trip was a wild goose chase. Jennifer was barely paying attention and wasn't able to find the house. The only interesting part of that trip was that Alan says that he drove past Hazara Vaughn's house. Remember, she's the one that originally bought the pager that's associated with the phone number that Jennifer gave police. But in the report, it says that when Alan drove by Vaughn's house, that Jennifer says that she thinks she recognizes that house and may have been there before. And after that, no follow-up, nothing. Alan's next progress report is from September 16, 1997, nine months later and just before the trial. This is the report that I went over last week when Alan realized that the wallet wasn't in the evidence room. So if you're wondering why Juan Mendiola is angry and why I'm so critical of these detectives, this is why. They arrested a 15-year-old girl for this murder based on a confession that they themselves disproved when they realized that Ernest and Tim didn't exist. They spent a whopping three days looking for Ian Slow, and then they marked the case closed. They never considered anyone else in the apartment as a suspect. They never circled back to ask any of the residents in the complex if they had heard what happened. They never really even looked for Catalina's killers. They used all of the resources at their disposal to find two guys named Ernest and Tim, but they did not use those same resources to see if anyone had any information on the murder. It was E and Slow or Bust. And if I'm not making myself clear, understand that there is a very big difference between looking for two specific imaginary men and looking for the men who killed Catalina, whoever they may be. Three days, that's what Catalina got. Three days of effort to bring her killers to justice, and then the case was closed. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. 
Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.